Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Hello and a warm welcome to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow and in this weekly series I'll be chatting to original thinkers, campaigners, creators, performers and the occasional provocateur. This week's guest, brought forward by a week, is Amanda Iannucci. Amanda is a BAFTA and Emmy Award-winning writer, director, and an ex-BBC employee. He famously parodied news broadcasting at the start of his career before turning his astute comedy lens to the political world and various film projects. His last published work, Pandemonium, began as a personal poetry exercise inspired by the government's handling of the pandemic. In this conversation, we talk about broadcasting and the political landscape, democracy and impartiality by Gary Lineker. I hope you enjoy it. Amanda Iannucci, thanks for joining us. I can see the Scot, but where's the Italian? Where's the Italian? Uh, a good question, actually. I think growing up in Glasgow, in a Italian community, both my parents were quite keen to have us think that we weren't different, you know, that we were British. We were fully integrated. I think partly that, I mean, my father came over from Naples after the Second World War. My mum was born in Glasgow, but her experience as a child and as a teenager was her father, my grandfather, who was Italian-born, being rounded up during the Second World War and put in an internment camp as an Italian national. Their Sunday afternoon treat was to go and visit her father in the internment camp when it was still outside Glasgow. So I think growing up in that atmosphere, both my parents, although my dad had a very, very strong Italian accent, they would speak to us in English, and we weren't taught Italian. I think that also gave them the opportunity to speak to each other without us knowing what they were talking about. But it seemed normal. You know, there's a large Italian community in, in Scotland and in Glasgow, especially. There was always another Italian name in your class. And in every year, there was an Italian name. Our food was <laughs> exclusively Italian. My father ended up running 
with two of his sort of business partners, a pizza factory. I mean, you couldn't get more kind of conforming to the uh, disgusting stereotype that we must stamp out these days than me. My father played Italian opera very loudly. My mum enjoyed Italian music. But it's that thing of maybe, you know, as you want to form your own identity as you grow up, you want to slightly distance yourself from what's around you. You know, as a, an Italian in Scotland and then, then as a Scot working in England and then as a Brit working in America, I've been conscious of the fact that I'm slightly inside and slightly outside. I'm slightly observing, but I'm also part of it. And, you know, that can be confusing, but it can also be quite creatively interesting. Because it is the most Italian name you could ever wish for. Thank you. No, and I'm very proud of it. And I'm proud of my Italian backgrounds. I sort of feel, you know... <laughs> Do you speak Italian? Very, very badly. I took it up at all level uh, at school and it came quite quickly because I had heard sure. it. You know, I hear the rhythms of it in the background. You know, so I can get by when I'm in Italy. I kind of want to make a point of learning it and actually now going to explore that side of, of life. My father came over in about 1950 and kind of lost touch with his side of the family there. And then he died when I was about 16, 17. So I don't really know that whole side. And occasionally we get contact. That's something I kind of do want to explore now. We've cleared our throats thus. Yes. <laughs> but inevitably, given the moment we're speaking, yes, one has to say a non-Italian word, Linux. <laughs> Where on earth are we with the situation? I mean, this is absurd. I mean, it's a typical British crisis. It's about immense issues, and yet it's also thoroughly silly. You know, it's, it's, you know, we've had government ministers going on the air saying the BBC must be independent, and here's how it should be. We order it to be independent. How can you unpick this thing? First off, clearly the guidelines about people who work for the BBC but who are not directly in news so who are not the public face of factual news presentation. The guidelines about what they are allowed to say off-air are so woolly. You know, the official guidelines were self-contradictory anyway, and no doubt we're going to have a revision of them. We're also in this Wild West area where social media, we still don't know what it means, social media. It's neither one thing nor the other. It's both private and public. It's where people can sound off, and yet people sounding off on a personal opinion is broadcast to millions. Surprise it may be, but there will be people who maybe don't even know what the Lineker story is. Well, exactly. And that's fine. You know, <laughs> that's fine. Google it. You know, um, my concern about it when it broke was that I almost felt we were being played in that the Lineker story was blowing up at the expense of examination of what it was the government was purporting to be doing in the illegal immigration bill, and I use that word illegal, both as part of the title of the bill and as an adjective about the bill. So in your mind, what has Lineker done? Uh, all he's done is express concern about where this is going. Hmm. And, and it's I, jolly rare that a big-time footballer yes. declares such a highly political and electrifying thing, which a great number of people would be extremely grateful that he has. Yes, and, you know, to borrow a footballing analogy, he did it very deftly Beautifully. in that he didn't say the government are Nazis. He didn't say that. He didn't compare it, the bill, to the Holocaust. He didn't say that. He said the language used was not dissimilar to what was being used in Germany in the 1930s. And there were lots of nationalist groups 
in Germany in the 1930s, using these demonizing words, menace, invasion, swamped, all that sort of thing. And I think the point he was trying to express in his 240 characters was if you allow this language to be continue used, then it normalizes that attitude to people who are other than you. And that's when badness lies, if you let it, you know, fester. And again, it's also in the context of, because then people say, well, it, it undermines an argument if within 10 seconds you've brought in the Nazis or, or whatever. I think it's also important to remember it's in the context of what's been happening over the last 10 years across the world in terms of the rise of authoritarian governments, normally who use democracy to get elected and then start dismantling the democracy that limits their power as soon as they're in office. I feel it's actually quite a sophisticated and accurate opinion to have. But the point also is, even if I disagreed with that point he was making, I think he's perfectly entitled to make it because it's not affecting him, his work as a football analyst and a football presenter. You know, if he said Liverpool's defence was shocking, rather like the language being used in 1930s Germany on air, you'd think that's bizarre comparison to me. What's he doing? You know, and similarly, you know, if Michael Patillo, who's been presenting train programmes for the last 15 years, if he said, I'm going down the Amalfi Coast now, and it's a very pleasant ride, and it just shows you what privatisation of the rail network can bring to the customer. You think, <laughs> no, hang on a minute, I think you're crossing the line there. <laughs> but we all know what Michael Patillo's views are off camera when he's not presenting those programmes. And similarly, I don't think it affects us if we know what Gary Lineker's are. I mean, somebody had to say something, and he decided to say it. Yeah, it's not that he's not undergoing the consequences of what he said, because he clearly is. He was taken off air, and he's a national story, and he's got press outside his home. And I'm sure that's all very unwelcome. You know, but he's also proved he's too brilliant to leave alongside. He's got to be let back in again. Absolutely. And, and also causing the question, the problem with the BBC at the moment, you know, it's one that's bedeviled it for like 100 years, which is it's a state-owned, publicly financed corporation that is meant to be independent. But this problem will come up again and again and again, while governments continually badger it, hound it, are in charge of appointments to it, are in charge of determining how much money it should get. And so we want the BBC to be independent and not go through this again. It has to be truly independent. I mean, one of the loudest noises of the last week has been the silence of the BBC chairman. <laughs> Because he's in such a position, he feels he can't intervene because of his own circumstances and the debate around them. So that's where you end up with a corporation that's paralysed. And I've long argued that the BBC and Channel 4 and ITV, we make the best television in the world with the best broadcasters in the world. Why do successive governments berate that industry and try and clip its wings, try and impose controls on it and limits on it, and try and dictate what people should and shouldn't say. What is frustrating is that the media story is, to some extent, drawing more attention than the real issue that yes. Lineker has so aptly chimed in on. Yes. You know, I was seriously concerned that there's lots of analysis of the policy on the likes of Radio 4 and the Today programme, World at One and so on, Newsnight and so on. But the BBC One main news programs at six o'clock and 10 o'clock were leading with Gary Lineker and not doing any analysis of the policy. The week the policy came out, the week that Suella Braverman said, we are pushing legality to the limit here, 
uh, the week that ministers were saying we may have to pull out of the European Convention on Human Rights. Those Incredible. Are, those are big stories. You know, again, you might agree with them or you might not, but undoubtedly they are big stories that should be examined. And I did worry that the BBC felt a bit cowed into not analysing them. And the Lineker story was some kind of rather interesting distraction that they could run with. I don't know, but I found it odd that BBC One, their two big news programmes, weren't examining the policy. And how do you think that came about? Well, you know, for the last 13 years, we've had conservative culture secretaries and conservative ministers having a go at the BBC. I think um, David Cameron, in a speech once when he was prime minister, said it would be delicious to see the BBC have its wings clipped. We've had George Osborne just telling the BBC that they had to pay for the money that uh, licensed payers over 70 were entitled to get free. So that money went off the government books and onto the BBC, and the only way the BBC could deal with that was to make cuts elsewhere. Nadine Doris limiting the license fee so that costs go up, but there's no license fee increase to go with it. And prior to that, Thatcher under Blair and Campbell, it's a long-running thing because of this problem of the government of the day actually controlling the purse strings and some of the appointments to the BBC. It's not sufficiently independent. and that How could it be? I mean, look at Channel 4. That's an independent hmm. company. It's financed by advertising. But I'm sure there's a way you can come up with a mechanism where the appointments to the BBC are made independently. But they don't, they, no, don't they don't want to. No, they don't want to. And, and also, they're suspicious of anything that is that big and that popular. You know, <laughs> no politician wants to give up power and influence, really. They never do. <laughs> it is extraordinary, isn't it, to be so proud of this broadcasting organisation. I've never mm. worked for it, so I'm not grinding no. an axe. But it is. It's a wondrous operation. Oh, yeah. I, I love the radio. I love the yeah. TV and the rest of it. But the government hates it. Yes, governments hate it. As I say, it's like, you know, this has been going on for about 30, 40 years. And, you know, the point I've always made is, you know, especially when we have to now compete with the likes of Netflix and Amazon and so on, we have this amazing industry here fantastic on the studio floor, skills, design, makeup, special effects, writers, producers, directors, studio facilities. You know, it's the best in the world. Why aren't we, you know, if it was a weapon system, cabinet ministers would be flying out to promote it around the world, but it's not. <laughs> and, you know, I did some time working in America. They're absolutely gobsmacked that mm. the government is not supporting the BBC this way, that it's continually finding ways of undermining it. You know, and you're well aware of how Channel 4 was put under threat of privatisation for no good reason whatsoever until the government eventually had to admit there is no good reason whatsoever for doing it. So it's a strange attitude we have. I don't know. I think I think particularly Conservatives don't like it because it's a state-run institution that works well, you know, and that that contradicts their kind of belief system, which is that the more you privatise it or put it in the hands of private finance, the better it will work. So what have we learned from it all? <laughs> uh, we'll learn, well, the lessons will only be learned in about 10 years' time. I think, I think the lessons, what we've learned so far are the guidelines on how we police <laughs> presenters and talent off-screen are confusing, and the relationship between the government and the BBC needs looking at again, because it just isn't working. It will keep throwing these problems up again and again and again. Let's go back to your work. Yes. Uh, because we've been through the jungle of other people's work to some extent. 
the thick of it. It was the first of your acclaimed political comedies. Are you, well, were you writing with a certain amount of sympathy for the ministers? Or was it informed by your research or a, a sort of genuine belief that ministers do sometimes go into politics for the right reasons? For the right reasons, yes. I think actually that's interesting because I've often felt that the way into the programme, the heart of the programme is the minister and the, the problems that beset the minister are those around them, telling them, no, don't do this, do this, don't do that, say this, you can't say this. Oh. Minister, I've told you never to ring me when I'm in the middle of a podcast. Go away. It's the chair of the BBC. My apologies. <laughs> That's the head of podcasting. <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> I mean, I made a thick of it for various reasons. I mean, the real spur was Blair and Bush's invasion of Iraq, hmm. 2003, which, you know, I thought at the time, I think a lot of people thought at the time, was just going to be a disaster from start to finish. <laughs> You and, were doing it, right. and it was. But also, when it happened, I kind of wanted to know why, given that experts were saying this would be a disaster, given that, you know, intelligence people were saying it's all very unclear, given that even the party had misgivings, how could a prime minister make something like that happen? And so... In tandem with that, I was doing a documentary about Yes Minister, which I was, mm. I was a huge fan of. And part of the privileges of it was being able to sit down and watch every episode again. And it still stands up, still amazing. What struck me was the same themes came back again and again and again, and are still here, you know, authority, Europe, cuts, all that. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to do a, you know, a more up-to-date version of that? Because the power dynamic has changed. It's not the cabinet secretary trying to stop the minister. It's the coterie of advisors, unelected advisors, plus the pressures from the media, mm. the 24-hour news cycle, and the way public opinion is now much more directly laser-beamed onto people in the public eye. That's forming the kind of paralysis. Really interesting. So, so that, I thought, let's show that. Yeah. Um, but also, I, I wanted to look at the, how did we get to the stage with the Iraq war? And it's because the British constitution, even though it's not written, allows the prime minister with a large majority to do whatever they like. They have total control. They own parliament. They can get legislation through that they like. They can appoint or dismantle the Supreme Court if they want. They have total power. So I wanted to analyse that, really. So that was the start of it. Where do you stand on um, the unelected, the special advisors and all the rest of it? Because the truth is that our system is barely elected in many parts. That's right. And I'm all for unelected people who have a specialist knowledge of the area they're working in, being able to contribute to a department. And part of the problem in British politics is that ministers move from department to department regularly. That's seen as one way of getting promoted. And ensuring no great expertise when it comes to no clashing expertise. with a civil servant. Yes, no expertise, because <laughs> it happens in the civil service as well. They move yeah. from yeah, one yeah. department to another. So you never have an expert in housing. We've had about seven or eight housing ministers in the last eight years. Is it exclusively British, or do you find the same thing in Italy and, and in the United States or whatever? Italy is always an exception Indeed. to how these things work. But, you know, in most European countries, the government is much more continuous. And maybe it's because they have to form coalitions with other parties, so they have to agree who's in charge of which department in advance, and they stay there for the duration of the government. I can't think of another country 
outside Britain, where government ministers move from department to department so regularly. So everyone is starting again every 18 months. We've had, what, five education secretaries, four chancellors. It means there's no continuity. No wonder we don't have a coherent housing policy or a coherent education policy, because no one's had time to map it out. And no one's been able to think long term. It's all short term. And that's the problem. But you're looking at it. What is surprising is that nobody else seems to be, <laughs> uh, particularly nobody anywhere where they might actually have some effect in changing it. Yes. Well, what, what do you want me to do? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can only do so much. I kind of want to do the thing of it as a way of, you know, opening up, taking the lid off the box and, yeah. and saying to people, look, obviously we're exaggerating for comic effect, but not much. Hmm. But this roughly is how it happens. So what do you want to do about it? Hmm. You know, I'm asking the question back, really. Do you think your audience is sitting there wondering what to do about it, or are they simply enjoying the fact that you're selling them up? Well, I think they might be enjoying it. I worry, though, that it makes people think, well, there's nothing we can do. Yes, I think there is a danger. That's that. the problem, yeah. you know. And I think now it's about telling people, if anything, the events of the last five or six years have shown, you know, democracy, once you have it, don't assume it's permanent. <laughs> don't assume you don't have to do anything more about it. You have to keep explaining it. You have to keep supporting it and defending it. And, and you have to keep renewing it as well. You know, it does worry me that the government is using the Republican playbook in America and bringing in a voter ID bill. Not a bill, it's passed now. You have to show ID to vote now, which is fine if you've got a bus pass, but it, it's not fine if you're a student with maybe apparently student passes aren't, aren't legible. It feels to me like, voter suppression. You know, it feels to me like the start of something a little bit more menacing. And I think we pretend that because we're Britain, we're decent and fair-minded, and therefore these things can't happen here. But they can because the people that carry these things out, that actually start dismantling democracy, you know, they don't wake up saying, what evil thing shall I do today? They wake up because they're convinced that what they're doing is the right thing. And therefore, I think we have to argue more. That's the, my other concern, mm. is that if someone has an opposing point of view, we'd rather not listen to it or we'd rather just shut it down and talk to people whose opinions we share. That does concern me, that lack of debate. And it's a ploy, I think, that politicians have gotten on to. You know, the fact that, you know, Boris Johnson didn't want to be interviewed by Andrew Neil in the last election <laughs> and got away with it. You know, Liz Truss was talking about going on GB News instead of the BBC. They've very much been alerted to how effective it is to just choose your interviewer, choose your inquisitor and control them and shut down debate from outside that you might not have any control over. But what does it say of the state of us that either Boris Johnson or indeed Liz Truss, lovely people that they are, or maybe. Um, <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. But what does it say of our system that either of them ever became prime minister? Well, you could understand the Boris Johnson one in that, you know, he fought an election and won. You know, he fought it on the basis of a personality that he's cultivated and a kind of easy way of messaging sophisticated issues in simple terms that avoided analysis like saying, get Brexit done, almost like repeating the mantra. And the more you repeat it enough, the more people either get bored of it and move on or just accept it as true. The Liz Trust thing, it just sums everything up. In the space of 40 days, it was like some super dense illustration of everything that's wrong with how politics and democracy works in the UK. The fact that a 
a small group of people in a, a political party could elect the prime minister. B, that she was being elected not on her ability, but just on the things she said. So therefore, you get elected on the basis of the policies you can take off, as it were, that your supporters agree with, without any explanation as to how you're going to do it, or any demonstration on whether you have the ability to do it. The prime minister that we have now, is he the reaction to both those prime ministers in that he appears to be very competent? Well, he, he is. You know, he's got a very tough hand to deal with, but, you know, He's been around and involved in that hand. And appears to be bright. <laughs> and, and, and personable. Yes. <laughs> I think there's a danger that come the election, he's going to appear more radical than Keir Starmer. I think Keir Starmer has built his image on calm, solid, I'm not going to go crazy. Don't tell me he's overdone it for the Labour Party and well, made it too, is that, there is now too that, respectable. Yes, <laughs> there is that air of, here's our policy on immigration. It's not too, you know, I agree, but we're not going to go crazy. He's turned down things like uh, proportional representation and, and things like that as, as not for us now. There is a danger, I think, unless he comes up with something a little bit more exciting and radical, that actually, you know, Richard Sunak has the ability, because he's prime minister, to pull certain exciting rabbits out of his hat in the next two years. So I think Labour ought to be aware of that. It's the power of the prime minister. Liz Trust, even though she was unelected by the public, when she became prime minister, believed that as prime minister, she could completely overturn the policies of the last government she was in and start from scratch. And that's another problem with our constitution. There's no way of stopping that from happening. It, it's like the prime minister become almost presidential now. It's become a personality contest. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Your work is often hailed as prescient or depressingly accurate. Deep, depressing. <laughs> <laughs> depressingly accurate. But some of your fiction came true. Can you tell me about the improvised policies that became oh. became law <laughs> <laughs> this is the um first episode of the of the thick yeah. of it and yeah. the government ministers so chris langham playing hugh abbott in the back of a car he's on his way to make a big spending pledge <laughs> at a school and he's summoned britain's press and malcolm tucker rings him up and says no the prime minister's pulled it we don't have the money You've got 40 minutes to come up with a policy <laughs> that costs no money. And so the scene is they try and think of something. He's got his two advisors with him in the back of the car, and he tries to think of something. And we filmed the scene, but we were still actually driving to the next location, the school, and the camera was rolling. We had 10 minutes. So I said, oh, why don't you just improvise some, and we'll see what happens. And yes, 
three of the policies that they came up with in the back of that car <laughs> were then law within the next five years, <laughs> which was, I think, James Smith as Glenn came up with everyone has to have their own permanent plastic bag. <laughs> Chris Langham, I think, came up with pet ASBOs, which became law. And Chris Addison came up with a national spare room database, which was the bedroom tax. You know, <laughs> so it... <laughs> And since that episode, when I've met various people who've worked in government and indeed cabinet ministers who've come up to me and said, I've been in the back of that car. And we, you know, we push these for, you know, we exaggerate. That's been an alarming moment. Yes, it is. It's very. There's you somebody know, telling you what you've been fantasizing yes. is actually fact. <laughs> it's like we'd come up with the most ridiculous, you know, as the series went on, as the show went on, we'd come up with more and more ridiculous things to happen, thinking. We must be ahead of the pack here. We do this, <laughs> and then someone would say, "You know, how did you find that out?" We thought we'd kept that quiet. He's like, "My God, did it happen?" It's frightening. <laughs> it's frightening. Now the thick of it is still beloved, and when something ridiculous happens in politics, people want to see it reflected through your comedy lens. But do you find today's post-truth, rule-flouting political landscapes too unappealing? They're not unappealing. I think they require more work. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to try and illustrate what's going on in an entertaining way, I think. Yeah, I mean, the thick of it and Veep in, in the US were made at a time and they were designed to show how the rules were bent and twisted and maybe flouted or changed and so on. But actually, those rules have all gone. Yeah. You know, there are no rules, yeah. you know. I, I think what we discovered with Boris Johnson as prime minister was that thing of... Um, Oh, the Constitution is predicated on there being a decent chap in charge. I use chap loosely to to reflect everyone. Will generations to come ever believe there was a Boris Johnson? (laughs) Could there have ever been somebody so absurd? Alarmingly, I need to raise the point that you're talking about him in the past tense. And, you know, he may well come back. Oh, my God. (laughs) But the system relied on people who understood what the rules were, and you could take things thus far, but no further. But he tried to shut down Parliament. Hmm. Illegally. You know, defender of free speech, trying to shut down Parliament. It was illegal. Um, Well, but just tell the listener, how did it work? So he wanted to minimise discussion on the Brexit bill. And because the Prime Minister and the head of the leader of the House of Commons have control over the agenda, Hmm. they can determine when Parliament sits and when it doesn't. I think there was a break coming up in about five or six weeks hence. So he thought, why don't we close it now? Give everyone a rest. And that cut off debate on the bill. Fortunately, you know, Rishi Shunak would call them lefty lawyers. I'd call them lawyers. <laughs> to Umbridge at this, <laughs> including many people in the Conservative Party, and said, no, that's just not right. And took it eventually to the Supreme Court, who overruled. Now, of course, in the next manifesto for the 2019 election, there was this rather sinister paragraph in the manifest, Tory manifesto saying, we also need to look at the courts and the relationship between the courts and government. It was a very general, deliberately open-ended and vague warning shot that come this parliament, they were going to look again at whether there should be a Supreme Court. Because, of course, Blair invented the Supreme Court. You know, it's not part of our constitution. Under Blair, it was set up. So a prime minister can equally... Unset it. Unset it, you know. So there was that. There was then a minister getting up in the House of Commons and saying over a certain bill, I think was it the protocol bill, that we are breaking international law, but only in a very limited and specific sense. (laughs) 
which, you know, if you were stopped for speeding and said to the policeman, you know, I was going fast, but only in a very limited <laughs> and specific way. So there's that. And time and time again, they're now talking about something like the Electoral Commission actually being more controlled by the minister and the minister appointing people to the Electoral Commission. So there's that that's meant to be independent, overseeing democracy. So this is what happens. You don't have a decent person in charge who just thinks, actually, I can make the rules to suit me, however. And I think that's become almost like a norm in politics now. And I think that's part of the problem with this illegal immigration bill in that not much time and legal examination has gone into it before it's been published. I fully suspect it will start falling apart in the next 12 months. This is what we used to think was government in Italy, your other country. Yes. It's we. Yes. Let me talk to you for a moment yeah. about the COVID inquiry. Mm. It's already cost taxpayers £85 million. Pounds, but the first hearing isn't even scheduled until June. It could be incompetence. The more cynical would say it's been a useful stalling tactic. Yeah. What, what do you think? I mean, yeah. it's incredible. Yes, and of course, if anything emerges now, <laughs> for example, Matt Hancock, he can say, well, look, now is not the time to be looking at this. This will all be coming out in the inquiry. You know, it's a very useful can it to is. kick further down. Yeah. I hope we're waking up to the fact that actually quite a lot, in fact, all the levers of power sit in one building. It's sitting down Downing Street. And that's not a good thing for a democracy. It's not a healthy thing for a democracy. And accountability aside, we surely have to be better prepared for the next pandemic. And yet the next pandemic might have well hit us before the COVID inquiry has ever yes. taken place. Yes. Maybe ministers will say, well, we can't really address this pandemic until we get the results of the inquiry on the last one. There is no habit in the British system yet for long-term planning and long-term thinking. You've spoken of your concern about turning politicians like Trump uh, into comedy characters. Do you think that it is dangerous for people to find politicians like this amusing? Just to, don't ever think that if you can make a joke about someone or ridicule them, that that will somehow <laughs> diminish them and shut them down. It, it doesn't work like that. And there's a danger, I think, probably myself included, that we saw him as some crazy guy who ultimately will fizzle out. And he wasn't. I mean, he was a crazy guy and still is. But he's very, very astute in knowing how to push the right buttons that will get him support, publicity. It's away from fact and it's all about feeling. He knew that a lot of people felt not listened to, ignored. A lot of people felt confused. A lot of people felt left behind and forgotten. And so he said all that. And it worked. I mean, it didn't work in that what he ended up doing was awful, but it worked and it got him elected. And that really was a signal to other people younger than him, maybe smarter than him, to think, oh, I'll do the same. But that brings me absolutely to the essence of the issue when it comes to talking to you. <laughs> yep. oh, you have said that you cannot change minds through satire. Yep. And you'd go mad trying. Hmm. But you also write more polemical columns. Do you think these can be more influential? Robert Harris has said on this podcast hmm. that lat latterly he felt he was writing exclusively for people who agreed with him. No, I still stand by that thing of if through your comedy you're trying to change the way people vote, I think you're on a hiding to nothing. Yeah. I think people can also see through it, you know. I've always 
thought that the more overtly satirical stuff I do, like think of it, is about really trying to throw the question back at the observer. What do you want to do about it? You know, this is how I can see how it works. This is how things happen or go badly wrong. It's up to us all to try and do something about it. I don't want to dictate. I don't want to say, you know, if I wanted to specify what my own view is on a subject, then I'd write about it in a column or something like that. Yeah. But if you want to really go in and change things, don't go into satire, don't go into, you know, become a journalist, become a politician, campaign, become a community organizer, you know, do it on the ground Hmm. or do it in a much more appropriate an effective or dare public I even say, platform. Stand be, for election. Or even be a, a reporter on the television exactly, program. Exactly, yes. It's using whatever platform you have yeah. to shine a light on things. You know, hopefully it might make people think about it. If it makes people re-examine their views on a subject, hmm. if it makes them discuss the subject, that's great. But I think, as I say, I don't think you can make a comedy. And, you know, given I was making them for the BBC, I was never going to say, you know, we now present you a series looking at how government works and vote Labour. You know, that's not... (laughs) That would infringe the guidelines, I'd say. But also, quite a lot of my time as a comedian doing jokes about government was during the Blair years. You know, I did the show Friday Night Armistice where it covered the entire Blair years. I didn't feel at all nervous or reluctant to look at it. You know, I agreed with a lot of their aims, but I was also, as a professional, as it were, my concern was this authoritarian taking power away from the departments, Mm. bringing it into number 10 that is not healthy for democracy Mm. and which led to something like the Iraq war. Change of mood for a moment. What comedy do you enjoy watching these days? I like The Last Leg because it's on Channel 4. It's on a Friday night. But it's not afraid of debating politics in some depth. I remember a time about 10 or 15 years ago when actually I think channel controllers were nervous of political comedy. They thought it would be a turnoff. And I think the younger generation or the audience that watched The Last Leg, they might be slightly put off by party politics, but they're very, very interested in politics, Mm. in single-issue politics Mm. or in in ideals and ideas. They are themselves political the younger generation yes. yes absolutely it's just but they exercise their politics in a in a, yeah, in a different way not the way we grew up yeah. so they don't it's not about a, joining a party it's about joining a campaign or expressing support for a, a cause it's much more on the ground and ultimately i think if we want to make this regeneration of politics in the house of commons work i think established politicians have to kind of accept that and have to address that. I think that is part of why there is now much more a sense of, you know, devolving power outside London because politicians, national politicians now recognise that people feel they can make a difference in their own area and in their local community. I was thrilled to find out that you have become a patron of Child Poverty Action Group, which is a great organisation. Well, I was asked to do their Radio 4 appeal. Oh, great. And I thought, well, that's a fantastic uh, cause. And what I like about them is their approach is to campaign and to draw attention to the issues and to try mm. and persuade and, and to be absolutely clear that they will engage with yeah. whoever is in power at the time. And so get it's not, policy change. Yes, and... get policy change, which they've been effective yeah. in. All last year, there was a concern that benefits weren't going to increase with inflation. Yeah. But but the work of not just the Child Poverty Action Group, Shelter and yeah. various other did persuade the government to pull that lever and bring benefits up uh, with the cost of inflation. 
I'm also quite interested in, it goes back to that thing of how can you actually make what seems like a small change, but has an amazing long-term consequence. And actually to end child poverty isn't a lot of money. It mm. really isn't. Especially when you think of the defense budget. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Or the amount of money spent on PPE uh, that was unusable. Yeah. You know, just to increase, I want, I'm not going to bandy lots of statistics, but, but just to increase the two children cap on child benefit, just to take the two child limit away, yeah. is about 1.3 billion. Yeah. But that would make such a huge difference in lifting families out of poverty. And if we don't deal with the issue of poverty at source, the cost to the state is astronomical. You know, the impact of, of people who don't start with that much more secure outlook in life is lack of productivity, people committing crime, mental health issues, people not feeling that they can attain what they're capable of. It's actually drowning talent. And, you know, if you go elsewhere around Europe, you see that longer-term thinking, which has meant that actually the support for people in the younger stages of life is mm. much more healthy and, and much more accepted. Do you think there's an alarming lack of ambition for policy achievements amongst the current crop of UK politicians? I mean, do you think Labour will be the answer? I think there's a lack of ability <laughs> currently. <laughs> you know, and this is partly a product of, you know, when prime ministers only appoint people who agree with them and don't appoint people who might be talented mm. but haven't expressed an opinion. You, yeah. you are then drawing from an a smaller and smaller talent pool until the pool of talent it might be a pool, but there's not much talent. In terms of Labour, I think I'm much more impressed by the general level of ability across them. You know, I, there's more to do. This, you know, I wish they were a bit more exciting. But, you know, I'd quite happily have Angela Rayner and Jess Phillips and Yvette Cooper and, and so on. That's my view. They seem able. They yeah. seem to have thought things through. We're streeting, you know. Um, but I think we have to do something much more general, about persuading people of talent and ability to go into politics. And I don't really care which side, really, because it has to be, you know, inevitably, you know, parties will come in and out of power. And there's no point saying, they're good, let's just keep to them, because you end up with a one-party mm -hmm. state. You've got to have that depth of thought and forward thinking in every party. And that requires, you know, talking to people at a younger age about politics, how it works, and encouraging more and more people to go into politics. I mean, one thing that Keir Starmer has done is to prove that he's a perfectly good and respectable leader, but does he need more fire? If he hasn't got himself, surround himself with people who can do that, you know? Yeah. Uh, and also, it shouldn't be about him. It shouldn't be about the leader. It should be about the team. Hmm. It should be about, you know, who is going to be in charge of education and are yeah. they going to be allowed to get on with it? Mm -hmm. And what are they going to do about it? And do we agree? You know, it should be about that. My great political hero is Clement Attlee, who was a dullard <laughs> and relished his dullardness, really, and surrounded himself with, you know, p political rivals and said, look, I'm putting you in charge of health because I think you're the best person to do it. I'm putting you in charge of setting up the welfare state because you're the best person to do it. Get on with it. And I'll tell you if I think you're making a mess of it. Um, that is the ideal, as far as I'm concerned. What about your work? My next project is a couple of things. I'm working on a film set in the world of social media. I wouldn't term it a comedy. 
Because <laughs> um, <laughs> the more you explore that world, sure. you know. Um, and I'm looking at, I did a poem during the pandemic called Pandemonium. And I'm looking at doing a kind of opened up, updated stage version of that. The interesting thing about you is that you have entertained people in a wonderful way. But thanks in large measure to the fact that you have an amazing intellect. I mean, no, you take Pandemonium, which began as a personal exercise, inspired by your own studies of Milton. My God, I did Paradise Lost for and I'm, I'm still lost to this day. Why did you choose the mock epic form? Um, because I thought if I want to talk about, you know, Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock, you know, do, <laughs> I, do I reduce them to, you know, animals or clones? Or do I raise them Brilliant. on, you know, do I treat them like heroes, you, you, the gods, yeah. you know, Olympian gods, and how do they measure up to it? I didn't sit down and think I'm going to write a mock epic. I sat down in the middle of lockdown, scribbling some lines, just as a way to sort of articulate for my own personal <laughs> benefit and therapy, <laughs> what I made of what was going on. And they just, you know, over the months, they grow and grow and grow into this thing. And it seemed to me my way of trying to process what is actually a fundamentally unprocessable thing at the moment, because we still don't know how this thing is going to end. It was just my way of kind of dealing with it. Well, you said a wonderful example was Dominic Cummings playing yeah. the role of Boris Johnson's guide in the underworld. Mm. And he has some of the most moving lines. This was partly inspired by his appearance at a select committee. What, what tell me That's about it. That's right, because this was after he had left. He was at a select committee and he said it continually shocked and amazed him that he and Boris Johnson were in charge. I mean, that's a terrible admission <laughs> to make. It's a terrible admission to make from the head of operations of a prime minister. But you are horribly right. Well, yes. Well, I'm <laughs> glad he admitted it. And therefore, if he had that degree of self-knowledge in him, what agony must he be going through over what happened then? You know, and to have that responsibility. You have a very juicy meeting with his maker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> who he'll try and look down on but, uh, <laughs> and try and get fired and, and marched out of the room in heaven or hell or wherever he is. But that's, I mean, that's jaw-dropping, isn't it? Well, I mean, Dominic Cummings, I, mean, I think in your hands, has been cursed by eternally testing his sight in the underworld. Yes, he's... he's what yeah. punishment would you make out for Boris himself, however? <laughs> I think the punishment for him is where he is at the moment, which is so desperately wanting to be in charge again and knowing that he's not if that could last for eternity i think that would be quite delicious what a wonderful way to end this incredible conversation i'm really grateful to you for a oh, pleasure a wonderful voyage oh thank you very much <laughs> thank you <laughs> that was amanda yanucci and I look forward to seeing whatever he turns his razor-sharp wit to next. There are links to Amando's poem, Pandemonium, in the episode description, and I hope to enjoy the stage version very soon. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. If you'd like to get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk. I'll be sharing another episode next Tuesday, so please follow the podcast on your platform of choice. And I hope to meet you back here very soon. Goodbye for now.
Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. This summer, you need clothes that you can wear anywhere. For that, look to American Giant t-shirts, shorts, jeans, and sweatshirts. American Giant makes everything in the USA. So when you buy, you create jobs and improve local communities all across the country. Shop summertime closet staples at American-Giant.com. And get 20% off your order when you use code WA23 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com with promo code WA23. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.